CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to a very special edition of Taking Stock. I'm Mike Santoli. And I promise we will not talk about Musk and Zuck tonight. I'm downtown Josh Brown, and I promise we will. I will find find a way to do that. I already have my flight booked to Rome. (laughs) Wait, the Italian culture minister said not in Rome. So maybe the Nassau Coliseum? No, Rome, New New York. York. Rome, New York. It's lovely this time of year. (laughs) For the next hour, Josh and I are going to tackle all the topics investors are talking about. We'll discuss and debate, maybe even argue, assuming Josh is wrong about something or something along the way. Uh, So let's get to it with a segment we're calling On the Clock, where we break down big stories of the day, the week, the month, all in rapid fire fashion. We'll start with the key data of the week, the consumer price index on Thursday, the producer price index this morning. I mean, pretty much on target across the board. Market largely shrugged. Uh, What's your take? So this is just like last week we were talking about unemployment. If you were looking for more Goldilocks, more confirmation, you got it once again uh, this week in the inflation data. For me, the PPI always feels like the Pro Bowl. The Super Bowl (laughs) is the CPI. Once we get through CPI, if it reconfirms how everyone wanted it uh, to feel, and it does feel that way, it almost doesn't matter. The one thing about PPI, though, it did uh, outperform, let's let's call it. Uh, a little and hot, yeah. A little bit. I mean, we're talking about tens of, tens of a percent. But the reason why that matters is because it does tend to lead the consumer price. It's what the producers are doing that ultimately gets filtered down to the consumers. So we'll keep an eye on it. But we're not, are we going to panic no, over this? Not panic no. at all. And look, the, the stock market was down fractionally on the week. It's kind of been churning around here. But I yeah. do think that the fact that we got this pretty much as expected disinflationary data still, and the market couldn't really seize on it to do a lot, basically tells you we've exhausted our capacity for surprise and delight at soft landing Goldilocks data. For the moment, we need to probably find something next. Plus, think- Treasury yields getting uh, up toward the multi I think you're exactly highs. right. This is now consensus. Yeah. So we're not going to have that delightful upside surprise in stocks every time we get more disinflationary data. Actually, the risk there is to the downside. Yeah. And the, even the, the perma bears, they've moved on. They're no longer talking about, oh, no, it's, it's still a hot, a hot economy. What now they're worried, oh, we're going we're gonna to undershoot. We're actually going to be back in deflation. So that's, that's where the crowd is right now. So yep. don't expect 500-point upside Dow yep. days every And disinflation time. is now bad for corporate earnings. That's the other story. That's right. Yep. That's right. Okay. Uh, let's talk about energy. So this was actually one of the few bright spots on the week. Uh, I think it was the best performing sector this week as well. And uh, this is a very simple story to understand. The underlying commodity price is going to lead the prices of the equities here. These equities, I I think are underinvested in. Uh, they've been laggards all year. You look at names, whether we're talking about VDE, which is Vanguard's version, the XLE, which is the S&P sector spider, just for energy. Um, I own something that's uh, the ticker is the IEO. This is the producers, and and uh, they're basically the companies that are domestically taking natural gas and oil out of the ground. And that's a BlackRock product. But regardless of how you play it. That's where the green on your screen was this week. Uh, People who watch the charts love energy right now. It actually has been acting better. Really, the sector didn't give back a whole lot of last year's gains. It definitely corrected for a while, but it's uh, also benefiting from a bigger rotation, which we should uh, dig into, which is 
mega cap tech, which people were pretending was carrying the entire market for a couple of months early this year, yes. has corrected pretty hard. You know, you have Apple, NVIDIA, Microsoft down more than 10% from their highs. Overall, S&P's down 3%. What's making up the difference? A lot of the cyclical stocks, some healthcare in there, too. Energy's in there. Industrials act reasonably well. Things like housing-related, Home Depot, Caterpillar. Uh, I guess the question is, can we have this kind of perfectly choreographed uh, baton handoff from one group to another? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, I think you almost have to have a view on the economy to get bullish on the energy stocks here. Yeah. You have to believe, or you're not going to get a lot of help from the China reopening that we've been talking about for two years. But you have to believe that there's an increase in consumption and that there's going to be some stability in, in pricing and that the producers aren't going to go crazy and, and start drilling like madmen. None of those things are happening. And in the absence of that, you've got a lot of technicals lining up. And it's, by the way, it's commodity wide. Right. You're seeing the same phenomenon. Natural gas had a good week. Oil had a good week. But so did almost every other industrial commodity. And so long as you're getting that in spot prices, I think these stocks remain bid. Over the last 30 days, uh, the oil ETFs are up about 9%, S&P up 1%. If that continues into a second month, I think you're going to see a lot of money head this way. I think we heard from a kind of hedge fund tracker uh, in this afternoon on the network uh, that hedge funds as a group have like doubled their exposure to, broadly speaking, to commodities in the last six or eight weeks. So clearly there's some uh, budding momentum in that trade. But it knits back to the inflation story we started off with because Agreed. longer term inflation expectations are ticking higher based on market based measures. And of course, yields are where they are. So the question is, does this kind of get us in a stuck place in terms of inflation and the Fed yields? This is a lot of stuff the market's dealing with in a routine. We might get stuck, but at least we can make money. Well, yeah, at least we find the places. All right. Hard pivot. Alibaba. Uh, Earnings came out yesterday. Do a lot of people even care about the stock anymore? I I think it is essentially worn out people's patience. Why? Because it's been dead money since it came public in 2014. If you held it from the IPO to today, are you up? I think it's a net zero, almost exactly. Well, at least from the first trade uh, after the IPO. It's about flat. Okay. This is a frustrating story on a lot of levels. And what's w- one of the more frustrating things about it is the fundamentals are really good. Like, relative to a lot of other companies, if you look at how they've done since Alibaba IPO'd. So the major issue here is a structural issue. Do U.S. investors want to be invested in these types of stocks where they're a foreign issuer, something happens in the Caymans, not exactly sure what, the right person signs the right thing. You don't actually own equity in the company, you own equity in a contract that is quasi-related to the company. It almost overshadows whatever the fundamentals might be here. And they're actually, if, if you look at uh, the earnings report, pretty good. If a U.S.-based yeah. company reported this, oh, stock sure. would be significantly higher. Oh, but that's the point, right? It's a China discount. Um, the Chinese authorities don't seem to want to have their own companies be these national champions that draw a lot of international capital and make their founders super rich beyond a certain level. Um, so it just feels as if it's kind of hamstrung by that, as opposed to the business model, even if you believe the cash flows. Pick, what picture. Picture a U.S.-based company, 11 times enterprise value to EBITDA. Three-year median is 17, five-year median is 20. This is about half the valuation that it's historically traded at. Uh, above the 50-day, above the 200-day yeah. since the start of July, 40% off its low. You would think yeah. there would be like a groundswell of maybe I should give these stocks a second look. 
I don't know if it's going to happen this year. What no. do they have to report? No, exactly. And so we'll see if, uh, if, if, if there's a perceived thaw around China. That's probably the only thing you're hoping for if you own it. Now, uh, Baupost, a big value manager, hedge fund manager, $25 billion in assets under management, filed its 13F after the close. Now, of course, it's a little bit dated at the, as of the end of the second quarter, but a couple of interesting moves, which is uh, a significant cutback at its alphabet position. Yeah. Um, and this is a value investor that's been in alphabet for some time, but also a new position in Amazon, about a half a percent maybe of assets under management. So this, th- what makes this a story is that when Baupost bought Alphabet, it was a 17 earnings multiple. So you could say, okay, I get it. Yeah. They're sticking to their knitting. They do want some big tech exposure. Hard to stay in business fighting against the, the big tech wave. That's probably the cheapest way they could have gotten it. This is not that. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what the margin of safety is in Amazon. Maybe it's that if Jassy screws it up too badly, Jeff gets off the boat and comes home. <laughs> and, and maybe that's your margin of safety here. Um, but this is, to me, this is a big deal. It's a million shares. It's $138 stock. Presumably sometime last quarter, bought it in this range. It's not a. It's not an insubstantial. It's not a huge yeah. position. What did we figure out? It's half a percent. Yeah. It's and but. look. It's it's certainly as you say not statistically cheap. But I mean, we fought this war 25 years ago when Bill Miller made Amazon one of his biggest positions as a value manager. Yeah. I think a lot of people will do some of the parts and say the e-commerce business is a under earning versus what it could earn, and maybe it's not really reflected that much in the public valuation because it's all about the cloud services business and the growth rate there. So you know, who knows about the rationale? Maybe we'll see if uh, Seth Klarman can come on and explain it to us. Uh, yeah, I, as I've said on, on Amazon for many years, maybe, uh, maybe over a decade, if it's trading 14 times earnings, you probably don't want it. I mean, <laughs> right. something is very, very wrong. All right, I want to talk about the weight loss uh, drug craze. This is obviously not an issue for me, per se, right. uh, but this is the thing now. We are now getting research from Wall Street talking about, uh, I don't know, $77 billion potential industry for all of these drugs. They're talking about something crazy like 7% of all U.S. adults yep. on one of these drugs within the next 10 years. If, in fact, those numbers are true, the ramifications are going to reach far, far wider than just the pharmaceutical stuff. Oh, the fascinating angle to me this week on this was Morgan Stanley, uh, an analyst that put out a huge report on the implications for food stocks, the food industry, um, you know, and it's a headwind in theory because the way these drugs work is you eat less, you drink less. Uh, it's basically aggregate calories consumed should be going down. And, of course, among your customers who are probably this, power this users. This is the health wall. <laughs> OK, got it. Keep, keep. Go on. Among you, you know, people who, uh, who generally are some of your best customers. So yeah. I did think it's interesting because one of the truisms of Wall Street in this, for this sector has been snack, the snacking economy always grows. It always grows faster than GDP, and they always have pricing power. So it's an interesting rethink of that. Put another way, the American eater always wins. Or well, don't, don't or bet other. against the American eater. Unless you're taking a drug to eat less, and it works. So well, you have to stay on it. And if yeah. you're not actually diabetic and you do get thin, what is the rationale for staying on it? Just that you don't blow back up again, well, which yeah. I, have many friends on, I, I have many friends on this drug. And actually, not only do they not eat, they don't drink liquor. Right. They, yeah. have no in, they have no interest. And that was one of the angles that the Morgan Stanley analysts right. took. So I it's think an anti-craving uh, yeah. uh, type of effectiveness there. Look, let's move on to uh, AMC. The, uh, the, the once and forever meme stock. So a Delaware court has finally approved the company's revised stock conversion plan to turn its so-called ape preferred shares into common stock. Uh, several weeks ago, the same judge basically disallowed this. So AMC Common, 
kind of goes down hard on this news. It essentially dilutes existing shareholders right. and enables potentially uh, AMC to issue more equity to you know, get, build a financial If you cushion. own the Ape share, you're up 30% yeah. in the after hours. If you own the AMC share, you're down. Okay. But the important thing about this conversion is now it clears the path for uh, Buffett and Munger to step in. <laughs> exactly. And maybe we could put them in the, in the Dow. Without a doubt. Okay. AMC. Um, now, of course, uh, they're also hitting at a sweet spot in the box office. I'm not sure that's going to continue uh, past uh, Barbenheimer. Uh, one more topic today before we, uh, we move on. Uh, a judge revoking bail for Sam Bankman Freed this afternoon, meaning he will have to report to jail immediately pending his trial. Uh, Josh, your take on this? They don't like it when someone who is the subject of a, of a trial starts dropping diary entries from one of the potential witnesses. Yeah. This, is, this is the sort of thing that's frowned upon. Uh, it's probably the best thing for him, because the, the other version of this is he sits in the house and he keeps doing things like this and he makes it worse. Yeah. So actually, it might actually help him to just remove him from all electronic devices, get him away from the New York Times reporters or whatever it is. And yeah. Just be quiet. Go do your trial. Don't do the trial on Twitter. Yep. And uh, I, th I think it's better off. Um, a reminder, though, of the magnitude of the meltdown and the fact that the crypto economy basically survived to some degree. With Bitcoin at 30000 it kind of survived this huge bubble and bust at its core. So uh, we'll see where it goes from there. Coming up, when we come back, two different earnings stories this week. One Disney, the other UPS. We'll dig into both when we come back. We're just getting started on the CNBC special, Taking Stock. Tonight, top down, bottom up, Disney bets big. We call and raise. Plus, Big Bear don't care? My sentiment has lately been too grisly. We've got the receipts. And the S&P 500 and one? Heavy hints that Palantir wants in on the index. I didn't hear no bell. More taking stock next. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. It's time for a segment we're calling Top Down, Bottom Up. We've got two different ways of valuing a stock or viewing it. I'm going to take the top down macro trend view. Josh, you'll take a different approach, whatever you like, going bottom up and getting into the fundamentals. Let's start here with UPS. Um, you know, for me, big picture, top down. If you think there's going to be more cardboard boxes like dropped on more doorsteps over time, this is probably a way to play that. It seems like it's a rational duopoly to a, to a degree with UPS and FedEx. Of course, we have a lot of issues with wage costs, Teamsters contracts going to be uh, a challenge for UPS. You see here the five-year chart. It had this massive benefit during and after the pandemic from the reopening, been yeah. kind of sideways since and kind of trades at a discount to the market now. Yeah, I think one of the things that affected the stock over the last year and a half and why that discount has been warranted is that you just had a slowdown in, in goods. People are spending on travel more so. And we know this is a very old story. So what changes from here? Well, I think one of the most interesting things that took place during the post-pandemic period so far is that we had this mass realization of who we have to pay and who maybe we don't have to pay or even employ. And look no further than the negotiations that UPS has had to undergo with its drivers 
versus what's happened in Silicon Valley, where it was tens of thousands of layoffs, every company almost uniformly. Fortunately, a lot of those people found somewhere else to be. It's a hot labor market. It's the the right labor market to be laid off into. But we just had this mass realization. Companies like UPS are really important structurally, really important, uh, whether the economy is doing well or not. And that's not going to change. So it is a duopoly. You've also got Amazon, which has largely built out its own fulfillment, even out to the last mile, which is truly remarkable. And between those three companies, I think these are assets that investors are going to want in their portfolio because they are not replicable whatsoever. So to the degree and you could buy them at reasonable multiples, I think you should. Yeah, it's worth noting uh, earnings estimates for this year and next for UPS are down this month, you know, with the new Teamsters agreement by 8 or 9%. So that's kind of your new run rate. So you base yourself off of, of what earnings are going to grow to from here. All right, let's turn to Disney. Uh, take a look here also on a five-year chart. Reported earnings this week, a lot of push and pull within the numbers, kind of beat on the top, on the bottom line, I guess. But it's really about the strategy from here, what it's going to do. You see the stock did at least tentatively bounce off that mid-80s level, which takes it all the way back to like 2014 or 15, but also was the low in 2020 here, uh, Josh. So how do you view it right now, given all they might do with ESPN, uh, all they may or may not do in terms of uh, changing the investment level of streaming content and all the rest? This is like almost wholly reliant at this point on deal-making. There's no cyclical story where the parks have more visitors next year than they did this year or the year before. Like they're, they're, no, one, no one is expecting that, and they shouldn't. Um, so this is almost entirely reliant on finding a way to do something strategic with ESPN where there is less of a concern about cord cutting and more of a focus on the future. They haven't made that deal yet. Until they do, I think the stock's very vulnerable. You can see in this chart, we are now trading at the same levels as we were at the depths of the pandemic. Is it possible that Disney is in worse position today than they were in March of 2020? Probably not in terms of their earnings and revenue, but sentiment-wise, 100%. And if we violate this this, uh, low, which I think is 87, I don't know where the buyers step in. Uh, and it's not that cheap of a stock. It's cheaper than it was a year yeah. ago. I mean, it's cheaper versus its own history. It's not really cheap relative to other media stocks or the market or anything like we, that. We looked, yeah. we looked into this. Uh, Disney has actually underperformed the S&P 500 since coming public. That's, <laughs> uh, excuse, excuse me, since the 1990s. Okay. So yeah, you, had, you, you, had this, you had this incredible situation with Disney for decades. It became a must-own stock. It hasn't been for a long time. It turns out it's extremely cyclical, yeah. and it's extremely reliant on things like box office hits and now the app subscribers, yeah. and those things are not going well, in the right Well, they got $5 billion in cost cuts coming. I do think they can rationalize uh, the streaming economics. We'll see how far that gets them if Marvel fatigue doesn't set in t- fully across the land. Speaking of Disney, the other huge announcement in that world coming from Penn Entertainment. Penn CEO Jay Snowden joined Jim Cramer and Contessa Brewer this week to discuss his decision to form a long-term partnership with Disney's ESPN. We know a lot more as an industry today than we did two years ago or four years ago about what that recipe for success looks like. And if you look at the continued consolidation of market share with the top two players, there is a recipe there. And that recipe is you've got to have a sports brand that reaches the masses. You have to have access to a fantasy database, fantasy players that convert very well to real money sports betting. And you have to have fantastic technology and products. And you have to be able to iterate and innovate and do things that others aren't doing. I think 
we check all three of those boxes when you put ESPN and Penn together. Our Contessa Brewer is here to discuss all of this, this deal. Uh, Contessa, the, I think that the initial takeaway from a lot of people was, wow, Disney got a pretty good deal here, even if Penn did get all of those things that James I mean, was talking about. I mean, when you think about it, other people are paying for market access. Disney got paid for market access. So they really flipped this thing on its head. Plus, the way that they've structured this is that they get a billion and a half dollars. They get the right, you know, they get the stock warrants worth another half a billion or so. And they don't have to go through the regulatory rigmarole that everybody else does if they want to operate a sports book or become a partner. So, so Disney got what it wanted. It, it wanted to have a little piece of the action and some skin in the game, but without going through all of that regulatory process. Jay Snowden told Jim Cramer and I, look, it's a win-win-win. Disney wins. Penn wins because we get you know, 300 million followers on social and we get this brand that is going to be incredible. And he said, we think we can go into new markets. They're not in New York. New York's the yeah. big one. They think that maybe they will be looked at more favorably with ESPN as a brand partner than they were with Barstool. And we know that Portnoy was a problem there, that he Barstool was a, founder, a, yeah. a, 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 a brand risk. They think that Barstool wins because it goes back to them and they don't have to be constrained by the needs of this publicly traded, regulated company. But I think Dave Portnoy walks away the biggest winner of all because he sold the company. He made all that money on it. He pays a dollar to get it back. Mm -hmm. And then the news that he filed today the paper so that he can sell 1.25 million shares of Penn. By the way, that caused a lot of chatter. Yeah. He went right to X and said, I I'm not selling it at this price. We could show it, actually. We have mm -hmm. this made up. He's like, this is, at this price, it would be crazy. I don't, I don't have the yeah, You could just file it, and yeah. then you sell it when you want to sell it. Right. It's, it's, a, it's a perfect short sale. Anytime you could sell something for half a billion dollars and then buy it back for nothing, the details almost don't matter, yeah. like in the, in the big picture. I'm curious what you think. Disney's very studiously spent 100 years avoiding gaming, gambling. And uh, now they're in that business, but by virtue of this deal, why wouldn't they just have bought a casino in Las Vegas then? Like if, you, if they're going to do it because they've got that ability to take the brand and then do something lodging related on top of it. I, I think you're asking me to put a psychology hat on here, but let me just put it to you like this. Sports is an American pastime. You know, who doesn't love basketball or baseball or football? Gambling is still seen somewhat as a vice. Sports gambling is the way to normalize this because it's it's something that was done over dining room tables and in the backyard and at the office pool for so long that it, it's normalizing gambling. Casino gambling for a lot of people still holds this idea that, ooh, we're going to do something that is a little off color, which, you right. know, they're so not going all the way. The casino yeah. companies are trying to change that. It's entertainment for them. They want uh, Americans to see it like that. But for Disney, this was the way in. What I want to know is, if they're willing to take on sports gambling, could we also have some beer when we go to Disneyland? <laughs> right. Well, at Epcot, you can. I, I, um, I speak from experience. So, 
obviously biggest sports media brand. It, it's kind of an obvious thing. They were tilting in the direction of use, of having a lot of gambling-related content on ESPN. So I, I see the window. What's interesting to me is what it means for the sports betting market in general oh, yeah. because they're going to gun for a lot of market share. There's some targets in there. And the, the interpretation was it's kind of going to hurt the economics of everybody else as well. Well, there were, Okay, one, there was an immediate impact for DraftKings because yeah. we saw that stock plummet as Penn shares rose on Wednesday with the news. And then look at how the shares ended the day today we have uh, DraftKings up six percent, Penn down a little bit more than six percent. So they've kind of just reverted to the mean. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of speculation that um, fanatics going in and buying up points bet would give them some fuel and some steam, and this would be the newcomer that everybody else had to be afraid of. There, there's a lot of speculation now that that might put uh, fanatics and Michael Rubin on a back foot again. Two. We just heard from DraftKings last week with their earnings report. Hey, we're really pulling back on customer acquisition costs. We're we're pulling back on marketing. Our most mature markets are really starting to turn a profit. And now what happens? If you've got Penn pushing in all of that marketing money, is DraftKings, FanDuel, Caesars, BetMGM going to have to ramp it up with the marketing spend again? And how many commercials were they buying at ESPN? That is probably not going to happen now. So, I mean, that's well, another they, angle to it. They're not precluded from taking it. Yeah. That, they that could still take it. Disney still owns a piece of DraftKings. Yeah, yeah. Correct? It, they do, but they own 4%. Now, what happens to that 4%, we yeah. still don't know. But the, but the ad market for ESPN is still wide open. Do you, you, do, you do legal sports gambling? I do not. No, me neither. I, I consider it a uh, voluntary tax on the overconfident. I don't. I, yeah. <laughs> I, have, I have enough speculation yeah. in, my, in, my, in my work. Same here. All right. <laughs> Contessa. Thanks a lot. Sure. Appreciate sticking around for us. All right, coming up, the NASDAQ ending the day lower, notching its second consecutive losing week for the first time in 2023. The S&P also dropping for a second week in a row. We'll discuss what's driving the action when we come back. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Major averages closing out a mixed week as economic data earnings, a credit cut, uh, on uh, the banks and more weighed on stocks. Both the bulls and the bears, hawks and doves, uh, added fuel to their fires. So where are equities headed from here? Let's bring in Dan Greenhouse of Solus Alternative Asset Management and A.J. Odin of J.P. Morgan. What, guys. A, what a panel, by thank the way. You for coming, uh, thank you for coming yeah. over. Dan, um, uh, what's your take on the degree to which we should be expecting a soft economic landing and the degree to which the markets have already essentially accounted for that? I mean, the market's clearly priced in a soft landing. And you see this both in equity and credit in a number of markets. Um, Whether that happens or not remains to be seen. But um, I think the issue now turns to to how the Fed judges the the, the economic data over the next couple of months and ultimately what that means for markets. And I don't think it's as clear cut as everybody's making it out to be. You don't think it's as clear cut as the Fed is basically done, you mean? You know, I think the Fed is probably done. Whether they do one more yeah, or not right. is completely irrelevant. I mean, you, you guys all know this. Um, the issue that we have to wrestle with right now is how long are we going to leave rates up there? How much refinancing risk are you going to cause? And ultimately, how much economic da- damage, if any, is ultimately going to result? And then what does that do to earnings over the next call, 12 months? 
AJ, uh, you guys have, you know, we're a little bit more downbeat on the economy for a while. You've kind of moved over in the direction of maybe we can have a pretty decent outcome. What does it mean for you investment-wise? How are you reading the markets at this level here? I mean, I mean, it seems like the markets are pricing in the softest landing, and that's what we're seeing right now. Yeah, we were a bit bearish, and I think it's because a lot of the leading economic indicators were pointing that to that direction. You've never seen the LEI index be this low and not see a recession follow. But for us, we've kind of seen that CPI coming in a lot better than expected. And the market seems to believe the softest landing is in play as the labor market has cooled a bit. For us, we're starting to lean into the idea that maybe consumer discretionary might be an area to invest just because it hasn't fully rebounded yet. We'll get some idea on those retail numbers based on what inventories look like. And maybe that could bounce back as an early cycle play. And then we do like tech to a certain extent here, just picking our spots for the most point. Do you think that... uh it's possible for the market to be right where we're going to have this soft landing that's priced in, but then also five rate cuts next year. That seems, that well, seems like the two things don't go together. Yeah, I mean, let's, leaving the soft uh, landing aside, the rate cut story is not simply one of economic weakness. It's not simply, well, if we cause a bunch of damage, then we're going to cut rates. If you leave rates up at this level and the inflation rate's coming down, then by definition, the Fed is getting tighter and tighter, even though they're not actually doing anything. So if you're going to engender a soft landing, then you're ultimately going to have to reduce those rates just to stop, for lack of a better word, damaging the economy to the degree that you don't already have to, or you did previously, because the inflation rate is moderated. And from, from an investment standpoint, that ultimately is what you want to see, the Fed bringing down rates because things are doing okay, not because things are not doing okay. I mean, I also think that once you're at a point where the Fed is close to the level the rates are going to get to, um, you're, only, you're not going to bet on further hikes in a dramatic way next year. So the direction of change or risk moves toward something might happen that they have to cut rates, right? Yeah, I mean, we've typically seen like an exogenous event that's caused a recession in the past. And I think March sort of had the market spooked a bit on the possibility for that. But I think the next part, the next phase, once we, if we get the pause, if September ends up being, and we sort of get that message from the Fed, it's going to be, well, how do they go from here? You know, when do we start cutting? And how do they start to ease without seeing the unemployment rate rise to a level where we start to talk recession? From an asset allocation standpoint, I'd love to hear from both of you on this. The problem with 2022 for the wealth management industry where I live is bonds and stocks being down, not just concurrently, but of the magnitude that they both were. Uh, Is that a a scenario that we should be concerned about going forward or stated differently? Which side of that do you see a bigger risk? Uh, The fixed income side uh, because inflation reaccelerates or the equity side, because we're, what, 17, 18 times earnings, 19, in a, yeah, 19 yeah. times in a, in a world of slowing growth. Like, where, what are you telling clients why the future might be different than 2022? Uh, and, and where do you think the bigger risks are? I mean, I think that inverse relationship between bonds and equity starts to come back in play. I mean, as long as the path forward is that softest landing, then it's time to lean in and adding duration to your portfolio. But to your point, there's always that risk that inflation accelerates, and especially we see that bounce in energy prices. I think everybody's been focused on core inflation coming down and trending down. But if we start to see energy prices bounce back up, then does headline start to rise? And then it's the focus is, can we get to that 2% target? You know, how's the Fed going to react if we start to see goods come into play? So I think it's more of the risk to the downside in the equity market, and, and, and clients should lean into adding duration to their portfolio. But it's also possible that, you know, the bond market pushes a little bit higher yields in the short term. For sure. I mean, when you talk about adding duration, right, uh, Dan, um, it, obviously buy longer term, 
fixed income, not necessarily because we think that yields are going to plunge from here or because we're going to make great trade and capital appreciation on it. But right now, it can serve the role in your portfolio that it's supposed to serve, which is stocks will go down if we get a recession and the bonds will be there to hold their value. Yeah, but I somewhat disagree with basically everything everybody's saying, yeah. because the truth is, the, tr- the truth is, the, it, 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 the data shows that really since post-2000, the relationship between bonds and inflation, yeah. if you will, have, has flipped. Pre-2000, Higher inflation usually meant bad bonds, mm-hmm. uh, bad performance for bonds, uh, because obviously. But post-2000, higher inflation until now has typically been associated with better growth outcomes, right. which ultimately has been good for both asset classes. And I think when you look ahead, you've already seen oil prices going up. You see this. You guys talked in the previous segment about what energy stocks have done. You've seen this in both equity and credit. Um, gasoline is at 380 a gallon right now, other than the spike we just had is basically the highest level for the last, call it 10 years post GFC. Um, so you're having this moment in time where maybe the relationship is flipping. But if you are going to have the soft landing, then ultimately you can make a case that you have upside for both equities and bonds going forward if the Fed is able to in- engender the They'll type be of correlated but moving in the right direction. Why, like, why can't they both go? Well, that's, what, that, that's the way it was pre-2000. That's right. Yeah, exactly. So that would be obviously be a Goldilocks scenario for wealth, for asset managers. For everything. Having, it's, for, the Fed for, would, the Fed, I'm sorry to interrupt, but the Fed will have achieved its goal. The problem that you run into is, is, is we mentioned just before, like the leading indicators and one of those obviously being the yield curve, like you still have to worry over the next 12 months about whether or not there's going to be no effect from these types of things that we just brought up, which ultimately always proceed or lead into a recession. But if this is going to be that unicorn where the Fed is able to engender a soft landing, and I'm not saying they will, then ultimately you're going to have positive performance for both asset classes. Uh, Yield curve inversion is still out there. We're steepening, but we're still inverted. How many years has it now been? It's been uh, it's a very long, very long period of time. Yeah. No, uh, well, we, which uh, curve you want to talk about? We in, we inverted, we uninverted, we inverted again. Well, yes, but but the truth is, it it can be a year and a half. Let's so if yeah. you look, the, the curve inverted. Here's my qu- here's my question: Can can we get through the uninversion and there not be this bigger recession like there has been? I don't know, 15 times before. That's the question. Yeah. Yeah. AJ, what do you think? No, I, I think I think you can definitely, I mean, initiate the soft landing. I mean, that, I think that's what the Fed's plan is, right? Yeah. They're they're trying to essentially ease us into it. And so I guess that that becomes a question of how many rate hikes do we actually get next year, and are they able to taper down from here? Now, with the speed at which yields move, I don't know how fast they're going to move down. But we're telling clients, lean in now. Stop trying to time the market. Stop trying to figure out when the Fed's going to get done here. Actually, start to lean in, and you'll have the opportunity to get that appreciation. So Dan's point. You could actually see equities rally and sort of bond, bonds rally at the same time. But ultimately, trying to figure out when and how it's all going to happen is something that we're just not really telling clients to do. We're trying to look more down the field as, as opposed to paying 10, 20 yards in front of you. All right. Um, by the way, Dan, uh, you're not allowed to apologize for interrupting on this show. <laughs> yeah. You just decide. It's kind just of what we encouraging that. I so. just do it all the time just to cover my bases. <laughs> all right, Dan, AJ, thanks a lot. Uh, great conversation. Coming up. Forget Soho House. The hottest club these days is the S&P 500. But why are companies vying to make it past the velvet rope? And does it matter? We'll debate that when this CNBC special, Taking Stock, continues. Coming up, easy club to join, not so easy club. Can Palantir pitter-patter pass the bouncer? They said it is next. Plus, is it draft in here? We separate the dogs from the divas, drafting the Dow. And 
Is it Biggie versus Tupac? Or Musk and Zuck at the Coliseum? Find out which leftovers made it onto our plate. Taking stock rolls on. Welcome back. This week, in a letter to shareholders, Alex Karp, the CEO of Palantir, said he expects the company to remain profitable and be eligible for inclusion in the S&P 500 later this year. So openly pitching the company for membership in that index. Uh, I didn't say it. They said it. (laughs) But, Josh, let's get into this a little bit, uh, because it didn't used to be this way where CEOs of companies essentially publicly uh, maneuvered or promised that they would get in the S&P 500. Now, obviously, it was always an imprimatur of quality. Uh, You're a blue chip company on some level. Uh, But really until Tesla got in and it was a big suspense and drama around that. But what does it mean for a stock, uh, and what did it used to mean, and, and why are we seeing this? Well, we'll start with what does it mean for investors. Undoubtedly, if you're invested in a company and the rumor that they'll be added comes along, it helps if the actual inclusion announcement gets made. Your stock is going higher. And in fact, uh, Research Affiliates has a study that says new constituents were up between 3 and 9%, and then one-year returns were about 13% higher than the existing constituents. But that effect has been decreasing yeah. because the markets have gotten deeper and wider and people are gaming these things before they happen. So it's not quite the same. For the company, my personal view, it's a short slayer. That's what happened in Tesla. Yeah. There were people who within 18 months had to go from saying, I think this company is bankrupt yeah. to, wait, it's in the S&P. But by the way, yeah. just functionally what happens is, you know, index funds have to buy 15% of your stock anyone, or more. Wait, it's yeah. better. Right. Index funds, anyone tracking index funds, and then anyone competing with index funds has yeah. to at least consider your stock because it's in the benchmark that they're competing with. We talked to an analyst this, week, this quarter about Uber, which is another one of the very large companies that's not yet in the S&P 500. It doesn't pass yet the profitability test, but they are another company which seems to be wanting to get there, in part because what you said, if you're a professional manager, it's in the benchmark, you have a different pool of shareholders. I just want to emphasize to people, though, that there's no magic about getting in and all of a sudden the stock's going to outperform. I mean, a year and a couple of months ago, current Dr. Pepper went into the S&P 500. It's underperformed the index by 30 percentage points since that. So clearly we make an exception for highly shorted stocks because Palantir had short interest of 55 million shares in January. Today, it's 120 million shares. Yeah. That's a situation where an index inclusion will look very different than Dr. Pepper, which probably didn't have that much money betting against it. And that's the Tesla effect that I think a lot of these CEOs are looking. I'm personally invested in Uber, full disclosure. I do think that'll be among the next uh, crop, I hope. You need a certain amount of quarters of profitability. It's important to the committee. Um, But it's a $90 billion market cap. We actually have this graphic, uh, Mike. These are Russell 1000 large cap companies that, for one reason or another, are not yet in the S&P 500. But these are the ones on the bubble. KKR uh, and Blackstone, they had a weird corporate structure, which for a while precluded. They weren't allowed in for a while. All right. Um, Marvell is semi-snowflake. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's profitable. So there was also a time when not that long ago when the S&P said, if you have um, super voting shares, if the founders have control of the company, we're not going to let you in. But until they Meta, backed off on that. Meta came along. Well, no, but Meta was grandfathered in. Okay. But no, it was after that. But then they've kind of even backed off on that. So Palantir would, you know, be, be in theory in there. But it's Who not else one is on of the top. Here? Apollo, Trade yeah. Desk, uh, Workday. So these are gigantic technology companies. Some, some of them are going to yeah. go. 
and uh, maybe you'll get that one day pop. The other piece of it is you have to be profitable for a stretch of time. Uber's trying to get there, so it creates a discipline on the company level, uh, maybe uh, to the benefit of the From that standpoint, I don't hate it. Along right. the way. Yeah, right. there you go. All right, coming up, the Dow has been lagging the S&P 500 year to date. We're going to give the 30 stock average a much needed makeover. Stay with us. Welcome back. The Dow Jones Industrial Average has been around since 1896, but it's been lagging the S&P 500 for years. Tonight, we thought it was time to remake the 30 stock average to fit the moderate economy or maybe just to kind of cull the flock a little bit, get rid of some stuff. Maybe it doesn't belong there. So when I started uh, doing all this, covering markets, um, Woolworth and Bethlehem Steel, I think, were still in the Dow Jones Industrial Average. So there's been a few generations since then. Uh, I'm going to let you, Josh, take the first crack at Taking one or two out, putting in what you think belongs. Uh, this is like Jenga, where you pull the one that's the easiest and the most obvious. <laughs> exactly. Okay, let me do everyone a favor. Uh-oh. So Intel is coming off. No disrespect whatsoever. Very important American seminal business story. Just not necessarily as representative of the economy as it used to be. This one, to me, is extremely obvious. Nothing, nothing takes place in this world that doesn't first start as a search on Google. I think we all would agree with that. Yeah. And as a result, because of how much economic activity they're involved with, from travel to e-commerce, et cetera, that's a no-brainer from my perspective. It does make sense. You still do have the founders in control. So if we're talking about what the Dow Jones Index Committee would care about, maybe they would be hesitant about that on some level. But, you know, we're just doing a Category killer. Here. Yeah. Fund- fundamentally sound. Yes. Like, it, it checks now, every already, box. Already, uh, you know, one point. $8 trillion market cap or something. So you're not buying low, but that's not what the market, what the but Dow price, does. But price weighted. They, uh, it, absolutely. It's okay. It goes um, in. Okay. So Walgreens, Boots Alliance, people kind of shrug about that one. It's a very small market cap. It's like $25 billion. Yeah, there's a healthcare and retail exposure. If we're taking Intel out, I want to put Broadcom in there. And because it's a Dow-type stock, it's not NVIDIA, super expensive, super hyper growth. This is a very large cap company that has a pretty broad portfolio in uh, chips and technology. Uh, I would also take Travelers out. I'm just going to propose. Mm. Why did Travelers go into the Dow? Citigroup. 2009, GM and Citigroup had to be kicked out because they were worried about bankruptcy or they weren't solvent. Yep. Uh, and Travelers had been spun off from Citi. That's right. And uh, was placed in there just as an experience. The only profitable part of Citi. Yeah, <laughs> and it was just kind of, it was there because you didn't want to put another bank in. They were all at risk. What's going in instead? This also seems really obvious to me. Yeah. The consumer is 70% of the economy. This is a global business. This is uh, a lot of continuity here. Is Schultz back? I get confused. He comes back. Uh, at- I think, he's, I think he's on three-day a week. Fine. He works from home, the other the, two. The founder's very, still very involved, very passionate about the brand. This is a brand that's known the world over. It's, law, it's a $100 stock. Yeah. Uh, won't have to split, but it'll be a big component right off the bat. Right. Not one of the biggest, but I think that works. So a couple of them that I thought would be very, again, very representative of the stuff that Dow does. Thermo Fisher. Mm. as opposed to Walgreens Boots, as a healthcare exposure is interesting. It's medical and lab equipment, fast-growing, very large cap. What do you now, take out You're not taking that? UNH out. Nope. What do you want to take out instead? I mean, Dow Chemical. I can't bring myself to take Amgen out. You have no biotech. No, it doesn't have to here. be a healthcare. It doesn't okay. have to be a healthcare. Uh, I don't know. What, what are you thinking? Where do you, where do you, Goldman Sachs can come out. I mean, out. Not the, Salesforce just went in. Um, Verizon arguably is not really 
kind of reflecting a lot the of The thing is, though, it makes the dogs the Dow list every year. You because, of the inter- <laughs> because of the dividend, yes. it, And it's always yes. terrible. Yeah. So, <laughs> ADP right. is another one. It's just a broad claim on the economy. But I find it interesting. We, we have a hard time figuring out what to boot. Oh, I would do. I mean, 3M. I'm okay with this. Yeah. J.P. Morgan does everything Goldman does, but does it better right. and is larger. I'm very, I'm very okay uh, with that. I mean, it doesn't have to be in there. Sure. But neither does And you got Goldman. American Express in there, too, for financials. You have enough, you have enough, you have enough financial. Yeah. I, I, I mean, is Disney and Netflix too much together? Is Disney and Netflix too much together? Um, probably not, based on how the economy operates. You got the theme park exposure in there uh, from Disney. That's not just. I mean, I think you could go either way. It's a couple hundred billion. You want to get this one in? So. You want to get this one in? ADP? Yeah. Nah. Well, you Let's know what? Okay. One of these gets acquired. You know, we'll, we'll replace it with ADP down okay. the road. All right. All right. Well uh, done. Was it, this is a better Dow. All right. We'll see. I think. Yeah. Okay. Remember, it's price weighted, so you can't have a super high price stock. Coming up, self-driving taxis getting the green light to expand in San Francisco. We'll see if the cars are ready to take the training wheels off. Plus, what we're watching in the week ahead when we come back. taking stock josh we're getting a raft of retail earnings next week oh no yes it's that time of the quarter uh what are you looking for uh to pull out of the big ones the biggest story for me is walmart versus target uh these two stocks if you recall last spring i think in may uh just got absolutely demolished when it became apparent uh uh-oh things are slowing down the post-pandemic period is going to be different than the pandemic okay fast forward walmart is up like nine percent since then Target is still down 43%. Can Target get its act together? This is a very big stock. It's been out for the count for a long time. That's the one that I think is going to be the most Walmart has a massive safety premium in it right now. People think they're in the right place. It's predictable. It's 24 times earnings. It's a really low dividend yield relative to its history. So we'll see if there's any room uh, for upside surprise right there. Now, lastly, we want to hit a, a topic for our West Coast audience. The expansion of driverless taxi services in San Francisco was approved, even about, uh, against some local opposition. What do you think? You going to move there? It appe- no, no. It appears that tensions are very high, and I can understand why. If you have driverless cars causing traffic in the streets, that presents a safety risk. So I, I, I read what everyone's saying on both sides of the issue. I am a shareholder in Alphabet. They own Waymo. I do hope we figure this out. Yeah. I think it's good for the world and for the economy, and it's safer long term. But we have to get through these speed bumps first. Tech versus local tension. Um, and, you know, it seems like it's a pretty good city to train autonomous vehicles on. It's tough to drive in. I've Don't tried. do it in New York would no. be my comment. Exactly. Do it here last. Plenty going on with congestion <laughs> pricing everything. All right. That's going to do it for us. We will see you next Friday. Last call with Brian Stubbs. Sullivan starts right now. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.